0: you do you let true green do your lawn care visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed
1: there is a lot of confusion and one of the reasons is that the official numbers come from the fbi but they're not released until over a year after the crime is committed it takes the fbi about a year to really suss through the information and figure out what is actually a hate crime what were false reports what charges were dismissed And the reason it takes them that long to suss through that information is because it's very difficult to charge something as a hate crime because you have to prove intent. Further complicating matters is the fact that all of the information that they have and they're sorting through, Elaine, it's actually voluntary. States don't have to provide this and many of them don't. And even the states that do report, the definition of a hate crime is different from state to state. So across the board, everyone agreed they need to make it mandatory to report these kinds of crimes and have some sort of uniform standard.
0: Paul Violis is a CBS News security consultant, an accomplished author, and a renowned global security and law enforcement expert. With over 35 years of experience, he's dedicated his life to finding solutions for the problems that keep you up at night. This is Security Matters with Paul Violas.
2: Welcome to Security Matters. I am Paul Violas, and this is a CBS News Radio production. I want to thank everybody for hitting us up on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. A lot of great comments, as always. And openly, I definitely owe people some, some re- responses, and I'm going to get to that. Remember, uh, also our social media at CBS is SEC Matters, SEC Matters. So you can hit us up at uh, Facebook and Twitter on that as well. But again, really appreciate that. Also want to throw this out there, cbsaudio.com slash podcast. Hit us up there. Leave us a review. Leave us a rating. It's really important that I specifically know what you like, what you don't like, so we can form this to be exactly what it needs to be. Very, very important. You can also check out the other great shows on CBS. Today, part two of our two-part series talking about hate crime. You may remember in the previous episode, we were talking about hate crime really targeting houses of worship. And um, we interviewed a, a wonderful gentleman, a, a just a, a great, not just a spiritual leader, but a great leader in our country, Pastor Frank Pomeroy from First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. And uh, Pastor Pomeroy was, was sharing, and I'm sure you remember this, because I, I mean, I, I, I can still remember our conversation right now. Um, on November 5th, 2017, when 26 souls were taken and 20 more injured uh, as a result of that mass shooting. As you know, I specifically don't mention uh, perpetrators' names on my show because I don't want to dignify them by bringing up their name, so I won't. What we're doing today, and, and this is you know really the essence of, of what Security Matters is all about, we're going to talk about what we're doing about it. Instead of screaming at the rain, we're going to talk about what we're doing about it. And we couldn't be more fortunate in order to answer that question than to, again, pure security matters form. We go to the premier law enforcement agency in the United States and the world. We're talking about the Federal Bureau of Investigation. No question, the leader in law enforcement. And who better to go to than Supervisory Special Agent Chris Donahue. Supervisory Special Agent Donahue um, has the Civil Rights Squad and is the civil rights program Co- coordinator for the FBI and he's located in the New York field office. So with that, Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today.
3: Paul, thank you very much. appreciate it.
2: A pleasure to have you, Chris. We're going to jump right into this. I mean, I always and so you know, Chris, I mean, coming from we both come from the same club. I like to benchmark things a little bit empirically. So when we look at the FBI's, you know, stats on on this from 2017, 7,175 hate crimes 8,493 victims, a 17% increase from 16 to 17. Um, it's, it's certainly an issue here. But before we can go down that road, I think it's, it's imperative for all of our listeners, Chris, that we benchmark this. So to benchmark the subject, what actually constitutes a hate crime?
3: So, Paul, a hate crime is a traditional offense like a murder, arson, or vandalism with the element of bias. So we say it's defined as a criminal offense against a person or property motivated in whole or in part by an offender's bias against a race, religion, ethnicity, national origin, disability, gender, gender identity, or sexual orientation. Uh, hate crime investigations are the number one priority in the FBI's civil rights program uh, because they have such a far-reaching effect not just on the victim of the hate crime, but the community that that victim is part of. Uh, I think it's also important to note that non-threatening hate conduct is protected by the First Amendment, uh, which allow for a law enforcement response. So organizing a hate rally, uh, circulating offensive materials, uh, posting Mm hated views online, are protected by the first amendment and uh they've really this presents a challenge to law enforcement in investigating hate crimes because
2: it it would have to i mean how could it not right i mean our listeners need to understand that i mean and that's a great point chris that you bring that up because how could that not create a, a sense where you're almost walking on eggshells sometimes because the public sees something and they they see it all over the tv Right, and and they're thinking, well, why isn't the FBI doing something? Well, the FBI isn't doing something in that particular case because maybe it is what you just said, protected by the Second Amendment. I think that's an excellent point. First Amendment. First Amendment.
3: Yeah, the First Amendment uh, guides us. Guides us all. What we try to do is try to see if there's actually a true threat. A true threat is not protected by the First Amendment. And the Supreme Court defines a true threat as a serious communication of an intent to commit an act of unlawful violence against an individual or a group. And what the challenge is, like we talked about, is a lot of people now are getting very sophisticated. They know where the line is. So they come up to that line very, very closely, and they don't cross it. And that makes it very, very difficult uh, to investigate these types of crimes.
2: Chris, just to kind of piggyback on that one part, when you say serious communication, when you're saying communications, does that is that just uttering verbally? Is that uh, an email? Is that social media? What does that communication actually entail? So uh, our, our listeners understand that
3: it could be any communication. It could be a phone call. It could be an email. It could be a Twitter post. Uh, it could be anything where you're trying to let that person know that there uh, there is a serious threat against. Uh, their person, whether their life or their property, uh, that there's going to actually be uh, a crime committed.
2: Now, the FBI has a long, rich history in creating valid and reliable methodologies in order to investigate crime. This clearly no exception. Um, Is there a particular type of person that commits such a crime? And if so, how does the FBI, specifically the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, categorize them?
3: So there really isn't one uh, profile. Uh, the latest stats, and I think you alluded to it in the beginning, uh, show that a little over half of the perpetrators uh, of hate crimes are whites, which means that a little less than half are committed by uh, other races or an unknown uh, assailant. So in a city like New York where uh, different groups are bumping into each other all the time, uh, that's a different type of dynamic than maybe another part of the country where maybe it's simply uh, a white supremacist problem uh, in a certain
2: area. Right. Now we see the FBI response to everything and um, you've seen it right from Charlottesville to Pittsburgh to to San Diego and it happens, it, it happens all over the place. Um, for, for our listeners to kind of understand because people always really want to try to put their arms around. So who's doing this? And I think that's a great point. I mean, so, if the answer, if I'm getting that correctly, I mean, it's it's not that there's one picture out there of an individual to say, uh, you know, someone who commits a hate crime looks like X. Is that correct?
3: I, I think that's correct. You know, hate crimes run the gamut from uh, teenagers in a park wearing a swastika because they think it's for kicks, So they're going to get their name. Uh uh, or they're going to get the incident relayed on social media to, unfortunately, uh, the incidents of mass murder or attempted mass murder in Poway uh, or the Tree of Life uh, Synagogue in Pittsburgh last year. Uh, they run every, as you said, any crime. So it could be something simple as two people on a subway getting into a beef, and they're from different races, and maybe that was the motivator uh, driving the beef. Uh, to any number of things. So unfortunately, there's no one profile or no one person that we can zero in and say, yeah, this is the model of a hate crime uh, perpetrator.
2: Excellent. And, And that really is important for everybody to understand so that, you know, it's not like you're looking for someone that appears to be X because in answer, then there really isn't that, which leads me to my next point. If it's not what someone looks like, then are there red flags that perpetrators display both physically and electronically that should send up that antenna for, for people to say, wait a second, you know, this could actually be something we need to report.
3: So sure, it's not one set of red flags, but there are maybe some indicators. But again, a lot of times uh, this is more apparent in hindsight after an event because at the time, uh, you know, before the event, a lot of these uh, things are First Amendment protected activities. So we've talked about the bigoted statements online or in person. Uh, we talk talked about, uh, you know, an interest in violence or uh, guns. Uh, you know, when, we, when an event happens, we look back and we kind of say, oh, well, it's obvious we should have done something. But until we know that there's that clear intent or moving towards that intent, it's very difficult. I would say to investigate something like that, but I would say that, Certainly, if you're seeing somebody who is becoming more aggressive in their dislike of certain groups, if they're uh, talking about violence or hoping for violence, uh, if they've got a criminal record, and that's important because a lot of the hate crime perpetrators do have a criminal record. It's very uncommon for somebody who has no uh, interaction with the criminal justice system to wake up one day and commit a hate crime without... An additional stressor or something else going on in their right. lives. So you know, we it, it's kind of incumbent on us, uh, in the community sense, to look out for people. Whether it's that kid in school that maybe is talking about certain things uh, in, a, in a similar way, where we look for suicide prevention if they're talking about killing themselves or talking about certain things.
2: So, so to what is Chris? What's the line in the sand? Um, obviously, very difficult perspective to be in. Of we have the First Amendment, and we need to respect the First Amendment, and the FBI and other law enforcement agencies need to respect the First Amendment. But what crosses that line in the sand when it goes from and, and I know I'm, I'm asking this because I can already hear all of our listeners, you know, both here and abroad, saying, "All right, so what's the difference?" So if you could possibly help us, what it, it, for you, right in your position, what crosses the line from freedom of speech? First Amendment protected. To, we need to start taking a look at this. What would what would be that?
3: I think there's expressions of violence, uh, in particular towards a particular individual or an institution. Now we don't have to, in our investigation, determine that that person actually has that ability to carry that out. So, for example, if somebody is a paraplegic, they're in a wheelchair, and they're talking about going to a synagogue or a mosque or a church and shoot something up. And it's obviously I have no apparent means to do that uh, because they're an indolator shut in, but they're making threats, and the people who are receiving those threats can reasonably feel that that, that from whatever that unknown actor at the time is going to do something, then we could prosecute uh, on that basis, even if that person doesn't have that ability to carry it out. So it's that expression of actual intent that is reasonable not simply well I hate all sorts of people or I don't like what they're doing in politics or I wish these people would go away or drop dead or realistically uh, be able to be done by one person but if it's, it's a threat like I'm coming there tonight to shoot you because of what you did or uh, your church is going to be shot up tomorrow and unfortunately we get threats like that and we have to take sure. them seriously
2: Absolutely so and you know what I'm going to use this and I remember this just you know in the days when I when I was still doing this, there's a gross disparity, and I'd love for you to weigh in on this, Just, and I'll come to the next question in a second, but there's a gross disparity between someone saying, you know, all whites, all blacks, all yellow, all whatever, all categorized are going to die, right? All Jews will die. All Christians yeah. will die. Well, for the record, that's not a crime, correct? That's
3: not a crime if it's just what we call political hyperbole, and the Supreme Court has uh, come out with that in cases where if people are just expressing uh, vague, broad sentiments, that that in and of itself it's not a crime. And what makes it hard, again, is that the people who, who know that come very close to that line and they don't step over it, or if they dip their toe over the line, it's pulled back very quickly, uh, because they know that once they cross that line, making a true threat, that they're going to get a visit from law enforcement. There's going to be an investigation.
2: So it's that actionable statement. Is that is, is that a, is that the best way to categorize that?
3: Actionable, and that the person receiving the threat or is, has a kills. reasonable. Got it. Yeah, and I said if we find out that it was an invalid uh, typing on a computer, um, two thousand miles away, and has no reasonable means to get there that still doesn't mitigate the fact that that person made a true threat and could be prosecuted for that.
2: Excellent point. How about let's let's now let's go a little bit deeper. Now, I a lot of people don't really understand um, the amount of interagency collaboration that goes on in law enforcement, state and federal. I think sometimes in the media is to blame for this. I think sometimes that we really don't show we show sometimes just the opposite, but we don't show how much that actually goes on. Uh, if you don't mind, Chris, can you explain the intra and interagency collaboration that's deployed to investigate a hate crime?
3: Sure. Uh, collaboration is the key to our success. Uh, it, it really is. Uh, we are very lucky in the New York office here to have a New York State Police Investigator as a task force officer. He sits on my squad with my agents. He has access to all the FBI databases that my agents have, uh, plus his resources. And it's just a real uh, boon to the investigation of hate crimes, because instead of trying to look through an email contact list, uh, get a guy in the New York State Police if I need something, I go to the guy right there. I pair him up with my agents so that my agents get experience from another agency's viewpoint uh, when they go on and investigate a hate crime. Uh, it really uh, is a benefit to the program. It makes that information sharing uh, faster and so much more reliable. I know the guy, and I know what he says, uh, that I'm getting the, the straight scoop, and I can get the information uh, much uh, much more quickly than trying to have to find someone who's not sitting in my squad uh, hanging out with my agents. Uh, we are also very, very lucky in New York City to work closely with the NYPD's Hate Crime Task Force. Uh, they are a tremendous resource to this city, and I don't know if the, everybody in the city really realizes that, but they do a tremendous job. Uh, The task force commander and I touch base weekly, if not daily, depending on uh, what the situation is uh, in the world, in the city. Uh, We share information, we work together jointly on some cases, uh, you know, the incredible resources that police have uh, in the local area. I mean, they know the streets better than anyone. Uh, Really uh, is a force multiplier for us. Now we contrast that sometimes uh, with other parts of the country that don't have um, a large police force or who have limited resources. So in those cases, the FBI often comes in as a resource for those uh, departments. So we can bring our expertise. We can bring our evidence response team. We can bring uh, our SWAT team or our computer analysis or cell phone analysis teams. We have the, uh, the resource of our FBI laboratory at Quantico uh, with, all the, with all the things that they can do. Uh, through technology that a local department out in the West may not have access to. Um, That is really uh, a lot of times where the FBI's uh, ability to mitigate that hate crimes threat uh, in an area really comes into play. And we do so much training and outreach. I mean, we had a hate crimes forum last fall, where we had law enforcement plus the community come together. We gave them briefings from the hate crimes perspective, the domestic terrorism perspective. We invited the NYPD to give their perspective. We talked about protecting houses of worship, and we got community members and law enforcement to talk together. So to fight hate crimes, it really, almost more than any other type of investigation that I've done in the FBI or types of Investigation really depends on collaboration.
2: That's a key point, and it's something that I really want to emphasize all of our listeners to kind of noodle in on this, because uh, oftentimes I don't know that we as as a country, as a national community, uh, appreciate the amount of collaboration that's done um, on a daily basis, as Chris said, from federal agencies like the FBI and other federal agencies, state agencies, local agencies, county agencies. Um, rest assured when you hear this that our law enforcement across the United States are talking to each other constantly. Not only when something happens will they work together, but they share information constantly. And, and that's a key thing when we talk about hate crime. We do know hate crime has increased the last three years, but do not think for one second that the soundbite you haven't heard is the fact that law enforcement's up in the ante as well. And that's a great point, Chris. I'm glad you touched on that. Last question. Um, how can communities specifically houses of worship, but how can communities, individuals, better protect themselves from, from hate crimes? And if they feel that they've seen a communication that has that actionable statement that, as you put it, made them reasonably feel that this was something that was going to happen, how can they better protect themselves initially, and how do they report it, and how would you prefer they report it?
3: So I always say the time to have an emergency plan was yesterday. Uh, if, uh, if anyone's listening and, they, and they're affiliated with the House of Worship and they don't have an emergency plan, uh, start today. Uh, FEMA has resources. New York State has resources. Uh, Department of Homeland Security has resources to help Houses of Worship come up with a plan. But I always tell uh, people that the best plan that's sitting in a drawer that hasn't been briefed to the stakeholders is useless. Uh, people like uh, the greeters and the ushers at the house of worship where who are at the front door where most of the incidents, uh, the shootings at house of worship happen. Uh, these guys don't come in the side door. They're not ninjas coming through the skylights like in the movies. They go right through the front door, or, and they loiter sometimes in the beginning, uh, maybe hesitant, trying to get up the courage to take the action. So if you're an usher and you're a greeter, what do you know about... Is somebody wearing clothes that don't really fit the season? Are they nervous? Are they muttering? Maybe just talking to somebody that's going to put them off um, what they're going to do by uh, drawing them into a conversation. There are resources out there. And I always say that you have to have, for House of Worship, you have to have liaison with your local police departments. And it can't only be during Ramadan, during the High Holy Days, or during Christmas or Easter. This has got to be an ongoing communication with your local precinct commander or That's whoever your local, local police are. Uh, it can't be somebody you just see once a year or twice a year. You've got to be on a first-name basis with the commander. You've got to know the community relations people. You've got to know the local beat cop uh, who's coming by. Uh, that relationship is going to be important. Again, that collaboration. Uh, you don't want the first time you're interacting well, law enforcement to be, God forbid, after something happens. You makes want little, mm-hmm. that beforehand. Makes, you want to know the threats that are happening in your community. You want to know is the threat sense. more community-based or is it violence-based or a combination of both.
2: So um, you had mentioned FEMA, DHS. Um, they can, uh, our listeners can go to those websites and look up um, crisis response plans or, or formats, et cetera. Is that something they could do?
3: Houses of worship—they they all have uh, resources online. Uh, certain grants available uh, through different municipalities, through different states, uh, that can help people with things like surveillance cameras or fixing okay. access if they have to. Uh, there, there is some money out there. I would also suggest that you know I don't want people to play their own lawyer. The reason you know, we have these conversations, right. yeah. I want to be transparent and have all the facts, but I don't want somebody getting a communication that's maybe iffy and say, ah, I don't think this is a true threat. If there's something that's bothering you, report it. You have that liaison. You know, I want you to understand that maybe they can't arrest the person immediately because of that communication, but a house of worship should be keeping a threat file of maybe hostile communications coming in to just sort of build a history in case, God forbid, that that threat doesn't really, uh, carry over to something that's actionable. Uh, again, they may be dipping their toe in the water, pulling it back, but they may become more brazen. Or, again, a personal stressor in their life uh, comes to them and they decide, I'm going to resolve it by doing a hate crime.
2: Makes all the sense in the world. So just to reiterate here before we close, Chris, um, if, in fact, right, we have listeners all over the United States and abroad, but specifically the United States, if we have uh, people listening right now that are in a small community, maybe, you know, four or five police officers as part of their police force and um, and all great, great cops, but maybe not have the expertise to really weigh in on a hate crime. Um, hypothetically, someone listening right now feels that this is something they need to, to report, but their local police department doesn't really have the, the experience to handle that. Is this something they can call the FBI on or should they call another agency? What should they do?
3: No, they should call the FBI, uh, and the FBI is going to have liaison with some of these departments. We, we put on a lot of training, and
2: that's
3: if great. we analyze the data, and if we see a community that's maybe experiencing a rise in hate crimes, that we can surge resources. Uh, the Department of Justice has resources where they go into communities and train uh, people for what to look for and try to mitigate some of the after-effects after a hate crime to bring communities together. Uh, there are federal resources uh, that and, that we can use uh, to help the local departments, and we that's
2: offer fantastic. a lot
0: of training. About for, Chris, uh, that's great, man.
2: And, and this is something, so everybody knows, uh, before we break here, this is something that I will be posting um, on Security Matters website at CBS Audio, so that, um, along with our, our our library on the show, the information that Um, Supervisory Special Agent Chris Donahue from the FBI has been sharing with us. It will be posted up there. So if you're listening and you're saying, wait a second, what did he say and you didn't write it down or you're driving right now, you're on a train and you can't do it, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Go to the website. It will be there uh, along with all the other information that that we post on on each show. So um, Chris, I want to thank you on behalf of everybody here at CBS News Radio and certainly everyone and staff at, at Security Matters. I want to thank you very, very much for taking the time uh, to join us today. Supervisory Special Agent Chris Dunney from the FBI. It's been great, man. I really appreciate your time.
3: Thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate you having us on.
2: Very much so. Very much so. You're listening to Security Matters with Paul Violas on CBS News Radio. Stay with me. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
0: Um, so 2017 numbers are a, a, a significant increase over 2016. So the rise started several years ago, and, and so we're on that continuing ascent. Uh, but I tell you, one of the things that stands out is, is really what's, uh, even though the hate crimes, uh, reported hate crimes are broken down here by the FBI, One of the things that stands out first is it's relatively consistent with prior years so that the greatest uh, number of hate crimes being reported are based on race and ethnicity. Uh, About half of them are uh, motivated by uh, some sort of anti-black bias, a far lower percentage anti-white or some other ethnic group. Um... The second most common uh, reported hate crime is uh, anti-religious. And again, here the most frequent target is anti-Jewish bias. Um, And then down below them, anti-Muslim, anti-other religious groups. Now, back to Security Matters with Paul Violas.
2: Welcome back to Security Matters. I'm Paul Violas, and you were listening to my interview with Supervisory Special Agent Chris Donahue from the FBI. Uh, great guy, obviously, and, and, and brought up some excellent points. And before we close on this, I, I want to just nail down a couple of things. As I mentioned, the information here, our notes, will be on our website uh, at cbsaudio.com podcast. Just go to the Security Matters website. You'll see our notes. But the thing I want to really lay out here is very, very important. Yes. Hate crime is on the rise. We have a hate crime problem in this country. There is no question about it. You can't stick your head in the sand. Yes, it has increased over the last three years. There's no question about that as well. But what I ask you to take from here is the word collaboration. One, that our law enforcement spends a significant amount of time collaborating with each other preemptively to share intelligence and also to respond to incidences um, effectively and expeditiously. But the word collaboration also comes to you, individuals, communities, community leaders, local elected officials, houses of worship. It is so important for us to understand the disparity, that line in the sand from protected First Amendment communication to something that's said that's an actionable statement that makes you who are listening right now feel or reasonably feel that you're concerned something may in fact happen. You need to know that you then need to collaborate with your local law enforcement, local police departments, and contact them. As Chris said, and I agree, make that an early relationship. Contact them sooner than later. Don't wait till something happens. And two, remember that there's information available at FEMA, DHS, for You can go on the website, we'll have it on ours, where you can create your own crisis response plan if you're a house of worship. If you're an individual or a community and you feel it's going on, you can report it to local police, and if, and if you're not getting anywhere there or you can't, then you contact the FBI. But the bottom line is, if we all collaborate together, then clearly we can do something to preemptively mitigate this so the next time we cover this, we can, we can say... Uh, Hopefully, God willing, we can say that the numbers are going down, but we can do that together. There's no question about that. I want to thank everybody for listening. Remember, please continue to hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can go to CBS's um, social media on Security Matters, and that's SEC Matters. Leave us your comments. Write us in. Let us know uh, what you think. You can go to the website on that, which is cbsaudio.com podcasts to leave us a review, Leave us a rating. Let us know the subjects that you want us to do. You can also check out uh, some great uh, shows from CBS that's also there. So on behalf of everybody here at CBS News Radio and uh, certainly our entire staff at Security Matters, I want to thank you for listening. Um, you've been listening to Security Matters, a CBS News Radio production. Be safe. Be well. God bless.
0: Thanks for listening to Security Matters with Paul Violas. The podcast is produced by Seth Nyman and CBS News Radio. For more podcasts from CBS News, visit cbsaudio.com slash podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you